Good morning and welcome. Uh, glad y'all are here with us in worship this morning. Um, I don't think I've ever been as excited about a series as I am the series that we're going through this summer. And I think the reason being is it's hard to think of a more practical series that we could engage in as a church than the means of grace. So if you're new with us, this is our fourth week uh, going through the means of grace. Chad talked about communion a couple weeks ago. Bob gave a an overview before that, and a talk again last week on baptism. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be talking about silence and solitude. But before getting into that, look about what do we mean when we say means of grace. That's a theological term that we mean when we say that. We mean it's a process by which God grows us in grace. So when we say growth in grace, we mean growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe that growth in grace is a miracle. I think we understand a little bit more naturally, intuitive, that justification is a miracle when we were made right with God. And we know that one day we're gonna stand before God and it's gonna be as we receive the righteousness of Christ, God looks at our record and he sees Jesus' perfect record. It's this miracle we see and we call that glorification. But we also believe that there is a miracle in the in-between called sanctification. We believe that there's this supernatural process by, by which God grows us in conformity to him, in likeness towards him. And what we're talking about this summer, while that's true, while that's completely a work of the Holy Spirit, completely a work of God, we believe that he uses ordinary means in an extraordinary way. So again, I wanna start by saying, we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and draw ourselves in conformity of Jesus. Why? Because the greatest commandment in all the scripture is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not something we can just do, right? That's a command towards our affections. So this morning, we're gonna be talking about what I've called the lost discipline of silence and solitude. Um, if you know anything about me, I'm probably the last person that is qualified to teach on silence and solitude. On any personality test, Myers-Briggs, whatever, I'm always off the chart on extroversion. I'm married to Kaylee, who is also off the chart on extroversion. If you know anything about our family, uh, our house, you could, that's the noise that you hear, by the way. Our house is loud all the time. Hey, Knox. That's Knox. Uh, Knox has a sister named Sarah Grace, an older brother named Whit, and we just found out a few weeks ago that uh, Kaylee's expecting a fourth child. And so we found out on Thursday that that child's gonna be a girl, so we're gonna even it out. We'll have two boys and two girls, but our house is loud all the time. Not only is our house loud, uh, I work in the loudest place in the building, the youth house. So I don't know who set up the architecture of this building, but it was wise to, the youth house actually isn't a part of this building. They set it like 30 yards off the building. It was probably really wise to let us not share walls with this building. But on a serious note, when I saw that we were doing this series, Val sent an email saying that we were gonna be going through the means of grace. I mean it when I, when I saw the email. Immediately, it was though the Lord spoke saying, this is what I'm gonna teach on, not because by me being proficient in it in any way, but out of conviction. 
out of conviction that I feel like this is unbelievably neglected in my life. And I think it's a huge means of grace that I think a lot of us overlook. I think this is probably the most obscure of all the ones that we're gonna go through. Think about what we've gone through so far. Communion, baptism, we're about to go through the word of God, fellowship, prayer, fasting, gathered worship. All of those are more intrinsically, you can look on the outside and you can see, it's kinda obvious where you see how the Holy Spirit would use those in your life. But I started thinking about, and thinking about silence and solitude, I thought about the noise in which we live in now. When I say noise, I'm gonna be using that word a fair amount this morning. I'm not just talking about literally audible noise, but kind of the clutter in which we live in. So what we see with our eyes, what we hear, what we think about, the distractions that exist all around us. And I've thought about how different the world is that we live in than what it would have been like 2,000 years ago. But not only is it different now, really the speed in which it's changed has been unbelievable in the past 150 years, and even more so in the past 30. This is not an exhaustive list, but I started thinking about the things, the inventions, technological advances that changed the world. 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. We were able to communicate from one house to another. 1895 was the invention of the radio. Start hearing the news, shows in our homes. 1927, the invention of the TV. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be around when the TV was invented, but entertainment brought into the home. 1983, the invention of the internet. 1994, 24-hour news coverage. So the news was not only consumed at five o'clock, the 10 o'clock news, but you could see everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what was going around the world all the time. 1997, this is gonna date me a little bit, but when I think of social media, I think of AOL Instant Messenger. Before that, you, you had to call somebody's home phone, uh, you had to ask their parents if you could talk to them. Then, and you had to think about what you were gonna say, then you could hide behind a keyboard. You could be a lot more brave. 2004, Facebook came. That was AOL Instant Messenger on steroids. 2007, the smartphone, not only did we have the internet, You know, I grew up, we had the internet and it was in the den. You had to go to the den and that was the only place you could access the internet. But all of a sudden, the internet goes from the den of your home to your pocket and is with you everywhere you go. 2010 came Instagram, 2011 came Snapchat and it is a blur since then. The noise, the opportunities for distractions are all around us and constant. In the 1970s, this was fascinating, the average person was exposed to about 500 advertisements a day. So that could be seeing signs, um, radio, commercial. So 70s, it was 500. In 2007, that multiplied by 10 to 5,000. In 2021, it was estimated that we're exposed to about 10,000 advertisements in a single day. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, teens today spend up to nine hours on a screen. That could be TV, that could be their phone, computer. Adults, we're not much better. We're estimated to spend around seven hours a day. Think about it, if you sleep for eight hours and you're awake for 16 hours a day, that's about 
half of our life that's wasted in clutter behind a screen. And I know everything we do behind a screen isn't wasted, but surely a lot of it is. Statistics say somewhere teens spend around three hours on average a day in the U.S. on social media. And you would have thought that the pandemic would have been able to help this, right? Like all of a sudden we had this increased ability to kind of sit and reflect on the way that we're living our lives, but it didn't. Statistics show that the pandemic only exasperated what was already there. But think about what we do, the majority of us, when the opportunity for silence, solitude, reflection arises. A lot of what we do is good. It's not bad things, but we so often want to fill the stillness, want to fill the darkness with just something. If we're really honest, many of us are terrified of silence. We're terrified of being alone with our thoughts and our feelings because we don't know what we're gonna find when we enter that dark space. So we fill it with good things sometimes. Podcasts. I've recently downloaded an app called Hoopla where I can use the Hoover Library to listen to books, audiobooks, TV shows, even sermons that we listen to from other pastors. We fill the stillness. We get in and we're gonna listen to a podcast in our car on the way home and every opportunity for silence we eliminate. Think about even the one time in my home that it's silent is about eight o'clock when the last child has fallen asleep. And what do we do? We invent something called a noise machine. We, we, we so wanna be away from silence that we invent a machine that eliminates the possibility of it. Y'all, I'm convinced not only is this a means of grace, but it's a means of grace that's more scarcely engaged in than it ever has been in the history of humanity. Though the first century in which Jesus lived was much quieter than ours, even Jesus felt the need to retreat to silence and solitude. Uh, I'm gonna read this passage uh, out of Mark, but this is the passage I always heard as a kid, talked about why do we have a quiet time, or you may call that time alone with God devotion. Why do we have this quiet time? But I want you to notice after we go through it, the context at which we see this. So I always thought of Jesus because it was quieter that maybe there just weren't pressing needs all around him. But here's, the, here's where we see kind of the concept of Jesus being alone with the Father. Mark chapter one and verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. It wasn't like Jesus, although he didn't have the internet, although he didn't have a smartphone, all of that, it wasn't as though Jesus didn't have urgent needs always around him. The verse before tells us that he had just finished healing people and casting out demons. Jesus had huge needs always around him. We see needs around us constantly, but most of the needs we see around us were powerless to do anything about, right? Think about what it must have been like to be Jesus to not only see the needs around you, but have the ability to fulfill any of them at a moment's notice. So he's just finished healing, casting out demons, and right after we find out everyone's searching for him. He was desperately needed, yet still the Son of God, amidst busyness, being needed, found it necessary to retreat to silence and solitude. If Jesus 
the sinless son of God found it necessary in his life to retreat, to silence, to solitude, to being alone with the father, who are we to say, I'm too busy. I don't have time. The needs around me are too pressing. We're gonna read this morning Psalm 46, and this is a psalm of comfort, but it's comforting because you're gonna see the sovereignty of God through it. One of the things, one of my favorite things I read about this psalm uh, was from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, whenever he would learn of catastrophic news in his life, was said to have said often, come, let us sing the 46th psalm. I'm not gonna sing the 46th Psalm, but I would ask that you rise, stand, as we read it out loud. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This doesn't contain God's word. It doesn't become God's word as it pricks your heart in some special way. It is God's word given to you, given to me, that we may know and experience the supernatural grace of Jesus. Be seated. Father, thank you for your word, that it's living and active. Uh, Father, I pray that as we talk about something that's a little difficult to understand, this idea of silence and solitude and what we do in the midst of it and how it becomes a means of grace, Father, I pray that you would enable all of us. Uh, Father, it's so hard to drown out uh, the noise, to retreat from it, Father. It's hard to engage in silence and solitude, reflection, Father, with the needs that are constantly pressing. Father, pray that even this morning that we would be able to pause, be still, that you would calm our spirits, that we would engage in your word and that it would seep from our heads to our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to be talking primarily from verse 10. We're going to see how all of this finds its climax in verse 10, but all three points are going to come from that verse. I've always wrestled with verse 10, be still and know that I am God, because while it's spoken in the active voice, it feels so passive. What does it mean to be still and know that he is God. I've never forgotten for a day, in the literal sense, that he is God. Like if somebody were to ask me any day of my life, who created the sun, there would have never been a time where I can't, you know, I can't recall. What does it mean when the Bible tells us, what does it mean that God is telling us 
to be still and know that he is God. Unlike the rest of the means of grace that we're talking about, silence and solitude is not in itself a means of grace. Silence and solitude is the one, and we can come to all of the means of grace in an improper way, right? But silence and solitude is the one that can be catastrophic. We can sit in our silence and solitude, and we can run from our problems, run from people, We can medicate, we can numb, we can do a lot in silence and solitude that isn't healthy. What we do in our silence and solitude this morning is a means of grace. So my goal for you this morning when we talk about be still and know that he is God is going to be what does that mean? What do we do in in the stillness, in the knowledge of, of who he is? So the first point this morning, be still and know that he is God by remembering First verse, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's one thing to theologically believe that God is a very present help in trouble. It's a whole nother thing to remember where he has been your refuge and strength, to remember where in biblical history, in human history, so not just the history you find in the Bible, but from the Bible to now, and where you've seen him be your refuge and strength in your own life. I think so often we can take all of what the Bible says and we can theoretically believe it, but not let it seep from our head to our heart. I want you to hear Moses' prayer found in Exodus 32. So we're not gonna talk much about Exodus 32, but I want you to hear how saturated the way Moses prayed was in remembrance. Exodus 32, 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have, that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And listen how God responds. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken bringing on his people. Moses not only remembered, he drew God's own mind to remembrance. He called on God to remember. The frequency of the word remember was mind-blowing as I studied this text this week. Over two, I think it was somewhere around 240 times we see the word remember found in our Bibles. But remembering is active. It's not passive. The, the noise, the clutter of life must be turned down, must be turned off. We must silence ourselves and actively engage in remembrance. When Wit and Sarah Grace were a little bit younger, uh, I would be watching TV in our basement. Our den is in our basement. And I would hear one of them. It's like I could kind of hear them, but not. I would hear, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I, I don't know if y'all have ever been around young children, but it's, it'll keep going. Dad, Dad. Dad, and then Wit would come and he would grab my face and turn it towards him and say, Braxton. (laughs) Immediately respond back, I'm not Braxton, I'm Dad. As much as we would like to think we're able to multitask, most of us really can't. Really, I would dare to say none of us can to the extent that we would need to to be able to really sit, pause, and listen to God. Where have you seen God proved to be faithful in your life. 
One of my favorite hymns of all time is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. One of my pet peeves about this hymn is there's a line inside of it that contemporary artists have slowly begun to remove from the song. That line is, here I raise my Ebenezer. The reason it gets removed is because Ebenezer is not a word that we use frequently in modern English, but this word, of Ebe- this word Ebenezer is really helpful in understanding what it means to remember. The word Ebenezer literally means stone of help. And there's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 7 where the Philistines are attacking Israel, but God gives Israel the victory. And after winning the battle, Samuel sets up this stone of remembrance, this Ebenezer on the battlefield. And after he sets it up, he says, till now the Lord has helped us. He set this stone up because every time the Israelites would walk by and see it, they would remember, they would be reminded of God's faithfulness to them, of the time that he gave them the victory. My question for you this morning is, what Ebenezers exist in your life that are constant reminders of his goodness and faithfulness? And I would challenge you to actively remember them. Not passively. There's a passive remembrance is that it's just in the back of our head. Active remembrance is drawing to mind, coming to memory, thinking about it, dwelling about it. First point, be still and know that he is God by remembering. Second, be still and know that he is God by reflecting. After telling us in Psalm 46 that he's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, look how the rest of the psalm goes. I'm just gonna read some of the things that it says in here that are pretty dramatic, hard to hear things, right? The earth gives way. In verse two, the mountains are moved into the sea, into the heart of the sea. Verse three, the mountains tremble. Verse six, if you've turned on the news at any point in our lifetime, it doesn't matter what news station you've turned it on, you will feel, verse six, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Verse eight, he has brought desolations on the earth. Verse nine, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And after all of that is the first time we hear God's voice. Now the whole psalm obviously is breathed out by God. We believe that this is scripture. But the first time we hear God's voice quoted comes in verse 10. And he responds to all of that with words that I wouldn't really guess. He says, be still. After all that, hearing Hearing all that, he says, be still and know that I am God. Why is he able to say that? Why why are those his words for us? The first nine verses, I want you to notice, are all truth, but they're truth from a human vantage point. They're from our vantage point. And all of a sudden, verse 10, we arrive at God's vantage point of what's transpiring among the nations. And he says, be still and know that I'm God. And here's what he says following. I will be exalted among the nations, not I desire to be exalted, not I long to be exalted, I hope in a perfect world that somehow things will work out and I'll be exalted, no, definitively, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. There's anything as you hear this, I would pray that you'd be comforted by the complete and utter sovereignty behind this command. We too begin to slowly feel like the earth revolves around us. Why? Because we experience life from a vantage point. We experience it from our own vantage point, which is often really misleading. 
Think about it. What do you call in the morning the first time you see the sun? Sunrise. Right? What do you call the last time you see the sun of the day? Sunset. Now, this is really technical, but it's true. The sun neither rises nor sets. It seems as though, because it seems like that's the reality, because from your vantage point, that's what you're seeing. It just appears to be rising and setting, though, because of our own sight. Here's what's actually true. We're spinning around the Earth's axis at about 1,000 miles per hour, and the sun is going in and out of sight. While we're spinning around the Earth's axis at 1,000 miles per hour, we're simultaneously spinning at about 67,000 miles per hour around the sun. While that's true, that's not how we experience it. I'm glad we don't experience it. That seems mind-blowing. That would be really weird to experience life moving 1,000 miles per hour and 67,000 miles per hour simultaneously. But with the natural mind, we tend to perceive all of life from our own vantage point, which makes sense, right? That's how we live it. We're, We're living life from a vantage point. But just like the solar system doesn't revolve around the earth, God's grand narrative doesn't revolve around you. It involves you, you're a part of it, but it doesn't revolve around you. There's a larger story unfolding. Your circumstances are no more random than this earth spinning around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour is random. There's a greater story unfolding of creation, a fall of redemption restoration, which simultaneously is taking place in the cosmos, everything that God's doing on the whole earth and beyond. And simultaneously, there's this story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration that's playing out in our own individual lives. There's always what we perceive to be true And there's always what's actually true. And we tend to miss God's perspective when we fly through life. Do you allow yourself the time and the space to pause and reflect about how God may be pursuing you through your circumstances? Often we think about God pursuing us and it's there's circumstances that happen and he's pursuing us despite, those, despite the negative things that are happening. But when we understand the sovereignty of God, we realize God isn't pursuing us, pursuing us despite our circumstances. He's actually doing it through our circumstances. Third and final point, be still and know that he is God by meditating. We live in a culture that does not encourage silence and solitude at all. Think about it, this has probably happened to you this morning. Somebody asks you, how's your summer going? What's been going on? What's new with your family? What's the one answer we all run to? Busy, right? It's like the only thing that's socially acceptable. How's everything going? You know, busy. One word. It's almost frowned upon to have any other answer than just busy. And I get, that's the reality, right? It wasn't as though Jesus wasn't busy. I don't wanna condemn business, but there's a difference between being busy and being frantic, living life at a sprint. To be still and know that he is God forces us to slow down and ponder, to slow down and think, 
to slow down and meditate, to slow down and remember. The reason why this was so challenging for me, I think, going through this um, the past couple weeks is by nature, I really am a pragmatist to a fault. And a purely pragmatic approach to the scripture is this, to open God's word and think, what does it mean? So I'm going to look at the verses above it, the verses below it. Maybe I have a study Bible. I'm going to look at the notes below. Maybe I'm going to pull a commentary. Maybe I hear somebody else's sermon on it. But I want to find out what it means. And after I find out what it means, I'm going to engage in prayer. But the problem with that is that it leads us, it leaves us in the rational. I don't want to demonize any of that. All of that is necessary, right? Understanding God's word is necessary. There's a new age of theology that would tell us that as we read God's word, we don't have to understand it. Theology doesn't matter, that whatever it says to you, truth is relative. That's not what I'm saying to you this morning, but what I am saying is that when we stop in God's word and we stop at the purely rational, what tends to happen is our prayer life grows really cold because we look at God, the word of God, through an academic lens only, and we forget that we believe that Jesus was the word become flesh. We believe that we hear from God supernaturally when we open his word. And it's as we meditate on God's word, we, like, we slowly allow the word of God to seep from here to here. How do I know that my prayer life has gotten cold? That maybe I'm skipping this huge means of grace of sitting and being still and knowing that he's God. Tell me about your prayer life. When you exit God's word, and whether it be God's word taught in the sanctuary or in a Bible study or as you hear it alone when you're reading it uh, in your den or wherever, and you go to pray, are all your prayers, do, do all of them tend to be around a list that you've made or just things you're asking for? Prayers of petition, of supplication. I would, I would suggest to you that as we sit in God's word and we meditate it, what do we start doing? Asking questions. How does this reveal my sin? Where do I see the character of God? Where do I see God's love for me? How does this apply to my life? Where do I need to repent in my own life? So then as I engage in prayer, what my prayer starts becoming is confession. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as I see my sin, all of a sudden I start seeing grace is amazing. All of a sudden, my prayers are not only supplication, but they start with confession, they get adoration. They move to adoration of how great the God that we serve is. The last verse I wanna read to you is the first three verses of Psalm 1. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So first verse is, blessed is the man who does not do those things. Second verse is the description of this blessed man. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How many of you can say, how many of us can say in this room, God, I delight in your law? I think inside of Psalm 1, we don't see, I, I, I sat so feeling so guilty as I read Psalm 1, but what I started to slowly believe is that I honestly think that as we discipline ourselves to pause and meditate, God's word, his law, becomes our delight. The process by which it becomes our delight is meditating on it. Do you allow yourself time to slow down 
and not only hear God's word preached for you, not only hear God's word as you sit in your quiet time, in your study, or wherever else you're exposed to God's word, do you allow your time, yourself time to sit and allow it to seep from your head to your heart? In closing, I want to say to you, it's one thing to theolo- theologically believe that silence and solitude is a means of grace. It's one thing to say that all of this series is a means of grace, but believing that something is a means of grace is not itself a means of grace. Does that make sense? I'll say that again. Believing that this is a means of grace isn't itself a means of grace. What I mean by that is this becomes a means of grace, it becomes a catalyst of growth in our life when we engage in it intentionally. And hear me again, I wanna end where I started, not silence and solitude for the purpose of numbing or medicating, not silence and solitude as a means of isolating and running from our problems. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. But silence and solitude as a means of grace where we remember his goodness, his faithfulness, his kindness, what he's done, what he's going to do, his promises, where we reflect on the circumstances of life, but through the perspective of God and how he may and is, maybe and is pursuing our hearts through our circumstances. We engage in silence and solitude as a means of grace where we meditate on his word. God, what are you saying, not only in truth statements, but what are you saying to me this morning? Pray with me, we'll close. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for this command to be still and know that you're God. Father, I pray that, uh, Father, I think all of us, if we're honest, walk through life unnecessarily frantically. Father, we know that we get to play this part in the grand narrative, but ultimately, Father, you've got the whole world in your hands. Father, you you are in control of our circumstances, Father, I pray that we would be comforted that you will bring about your purposes and your will. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would enable all of us to retreat to silence and solitude and experience your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.